The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, alongside my co-host, Matt Miller. Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news. Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and at Bloomberg.com slash podcast. Again, a lot of weight to this tape uh, all throughout the day. Uh, one of the reasons is some concern about the banking sector and the new news today was our good friends over in Zurich, Credit Suisse, the story that just keeps giving and not in a good way. So we want to get the latest on what's happening at Credit Suisse. How concerned should we be about the European banking sector in general? And what is the spillover effect, if any, uh, for some of the larger uh, U.S. global banks to do that? We welcome uh, Allison Williams. She's a senior banks analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, she is also a leader of the Bloomberg Intelligence business in the U.S. So we appreciate getting some time here. Uh, Allison, you know, give us the latest on Credit Suisse. I guess the latest news is their big uh, uh, Arab investor a ain't coming back for more. Is that kind of the story? So I, I think, the, you know, the issue with Credit Suisse that I, I think has in, in common with the SFB situation is just it's it's sort of a market sentiment and it's hard to make fundamental arguments against market sentiment, especially when we saw in 4Q that investors got so concerned they pulled over $100 billion from the bank. And, you know, they, they said on Monday they've seen inflows, um, you know, that provided sort of a moment of confidence. But I think what, what's difficult now is investors are trying to get a, a sense of, um, you know, what can turn this around because we had their, their newest, biggest shareholder saying that, that, that they're not going to increase their positions, partly because of regulatory and statutory reasons. But then they cited also other reasons, which um, they were vague about. And, you know, that they have another long-term shareholder um, having sold off their position in the, in the past couple of quarters. So it, it does seem like we need to hear from the Swiss regulators. Um, there's a story that just uh, that came out a little bit ago um, again, I have no idea the, the validity of the story, but saying that um, they are asking for a public show of report from the regulators. Allison, what does their balance sheet look like? So the, 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 their balance sheet is very different from uh, you know the, the two banks that we saw um, fail in the U.S. in the sense that they do not have the issue of you know, this, this huge bond portfolio with unrealized losses, um, you know, that that was sort of the thing that was out there that when deposits outflowed from those banks, um, you know, they, they couldn't, um, you know, that really caused illiquidity in those issues. So, um, you know, for Credit Suisse, they do have a fair amount of deposits. They do have some wholesale funding. They just raised capital. They have a 14.1% CET one ratio. They had tons of excess liquidity, at least at the end of the fourth quarter, you know, the, the concern is just that, 
you know, that can shift very quickly. Um, and so I think that's why investors are looking for, um, you know, some sign of stability or mm. some disclosure to provide some comfort. Unfortunately, when, when, when people reference their CET1 ratio, as I just did, or banks come out and say they don't need to raise capital, there's obviously a little bit of skepticism because of things that we saw in the past. But, but I, will, I will chime into, you know, Paul was saying earlier that this feels very different than 2008. And I think, you know, one key difference is in, in 2008, we did have a lot of, you know, we had broad issues in the system broad issues. In, in this case, uh, we have some risk mismanagement at a few banks, uh, some names that people are worried about, uh, the deposit uh, the deposit mismatch and the, and the bond investments are broad across the U.S. banks, but, but certainly not to the, you know, the couple of banks had, had very unique, um, very, their, their deposit bases were very weak, if you will, and so that, that was what was sort of unique about them. And, and similar with Credit Suisse, yep. and I think that's what we saw with Credit Suisse over the last couple of years is that a lot of their business has gone away to some of the stronger predators. That's, that's what's led to the pressure. And, and I'll, just say, I'll just say one thing that I know Paul remembers, but you know, when Lehman failed, there was a significant period of time between Bear Stearns and Lehman, um, I think, where banks were reducing risk, managing their counterparty risk, and so, you know, when we had that moment with Lehman, um, it was a big money market fund. It was something that people didn't anticipate. Um, but again, with Credit Suisse, this is not an overnight situation like it was with uh, Silicon Valley bank shares. This is something that's been happening over a couple of years. They don't have the prime brokerage business anymore. And, and so I think they're, they're the, a lot of the systemic risks that we would normally worry about have been reduced. So, Alice, that's kind of where I wanted to go. I think one of the things I learned as as a, a newbie to the kind of the bank, you know, the bank and bank accounting and all that, how it all works is, boy, confidence is so key. And when you lose the confidence of your counterparties, basically it's game over. And that's kind of what we saw for during 2008 for a number of players. Does Credit Suisse have that risk today? Credit Suisse... It, it is a crisis of confidence happening right now, and they do need, and I think that is why they're asking regulators to come out and show some kind of support. They, there needs to be, there needs to be something that provides uh, a, a floor under the market and gives some kind of confidence. Um, and again, you know, it, over the last year or so, they they did have a one big shareholder that was sticking by them. Um, they raised the capital. Those were both kind of signs that things were steadying. They said that flows had sort of steadied, and then, you know, there's now some questions around those disclosures and how accurate they were. And so that, that makes it tough for, for the bank to come out and make comments, and I think that's why they do need a third party to, um, you know, come in and stabilize things and, and give some confidence. That's, that's what the Fed did when, with, with the banks, right? So they not only did they um, take over the banks, they said that the deposits are going to be insured, and they provided a facility to, you know, cut the worries across a broader banking system. And so, yeah. um, I, I think that's that's sort of what we need at this moment from from could, the US. Could somebody buy them, take over? What what's happening on that front, if anything? So, you know, and I think we've talked about before. You know, people have long speculated about M and A with Credit Suisse. We, in the past, didn't think that was a possibility because they are are globally systemic important bank with a very complex balance sheet. Um, and, you know, there's all the regulatory aspects, especially if you're considering cross-border 
However, if you look at their operations today, having sold off a lot of their trading, they're not in prime brokerage, they're cutting a lot of risk assets, they're really going to a more focused wealth manager, it does seem like that, that could be more of a possibility. There's, you know, there, there's still a systemically important bank based on you know, some of the historical metrics, but you know, the, the way that the business looks going forward, is there an opportunity? You know, the, but then the other side of that is UBS has been gaining massive inflows um, while Credit Suisse has been having outflows and, and neither one is going to point to um, or confirm or deny what's happening on the competitive front, but it seems pretty clear that the flows are going to UBS anyway. So the, the question is, you know, is someone going to step in and, and buy buy this bank or will they just try to continue to win share in other ways? Um, Swiss National yes. Bank, Allison, are you surprised that the Swiss National Swiss National Bank hasn't either made a forceful statement of support or maybe even done something more, like take some action somehow? You know, I don't know what that action would be, but are you surprised we haven't seen that yet from them? I think that, you know, we in the U.S. find it surprising, I think, because it is a very different regulator, right, than the Fed. And I think that, um, you know, from everything that we know and hear about it, they just tend to operate a little bit differently, Um, whereas I think the Fed is is much more known for coming out and having a voice in the market and, and addressing things on. So... Um, and, and there is a difference between, you know, if you look at sort of the, the, the universe um, that, that they're overseeing, the, the issue with Credit Suisse and UBS, I think, versus some of the U.S. banks is that if you look at historically their assets and their businesses as a, a multiple of the Swiss economy, they're much more important to the Swiss economy, just these two banks. Um, so one would one would think that something would be coming again yeah. since no one really knows what that might be and you know we we don't know what's going on between behind the scenes and the conversations and um you know if there's if if they're you know what the conversations are between them right. and credit suisse and, and, and anything else yeah because when i think switzerland i think cheese i think banking <laughs> i mean so chocolate and banking. yeah and yeah chocolate and banking so I, I don't know where the swiss national bank is all right allison thanks so much for joining us allison williams senior global banks analyst at bloomberg intelligence just trying to get the latest on this credit swiss thing i mean i used to work there man when i was there we were killing it um you know but the institution before my time and since has always always had a, a just a real blind spot for controls you know and uh, bad things happen more so, more frequently there than in other places, it seems. We want to break down how the con- those retail sales numbers looked and how the consumer's looking and how just retailers in general are looking. And when you want to do that, there's only one place to go, and that's Dana Telsey, Chief Research Officer and CEO of Telsey Advisory Group. Dana, let's start with those retail sales numbers this morning. Uh, what were your takeaways? I think overall, and first of all, thank you for having me. I think the takeaways overall for retail sales, keep in mind you had January revised upward, and most of the retailers I'm talking about, talking to talked about the surprise and the strength in January as, frankly, goods on markdown cleared out. The beginning of February, I mean, definitely a little bit wishy-washy, so not totally surprised. February is not a very significant month. You had a lot of strength in department stores in the month of January, 
part of that coming from the increase in Social Security payments that the baby boomers received who like to shop at some of the department stores. And my takeaway is that we are seeing consumer slowdown in goods. We have been seeing it. We're going to continue to see it. Inventory levels have gotten clean. And the uncertainty in the environment feeds through to overall consumer spending. Dana, when we talk about what 2023 was supposed to kind of hail, I think it was still a couple of months of markdowns and clearances, and we weren't quite done with that era. Now that we perhaps are looking at a macroeconomic environment where easing is on the table, is that still the case? Um, I think overall, we're still going to see a challenge first quarter, first quarter and second quarter maybe like that too. I think overall, the whether it's the level of traffic, whether it's product returns, even the normalization of increases at luxury goods is occurring right now. So overall, the guidance for particularly the first quarter is coming in below consensus. But you know what? I think whatever that consensus was, I think the whisper expectations out there was for it to be lower. If you can manage your expenses, keep your inventories levels lean, in order to take advantage of whenever the consumer feels a little bit more certain, to have some leverage to the bottom line is the focus. And we're definitely seeing it. Cosmetics is one of the areas that that's working. It seems like there's a pickup in experiential with restaurants. The apparel part is a bit more challenged now. Dana, what are your, the companies telling you about China. Um, reopening, reopening faster than people thought. I believe the U.S. is going to loosen pretty significantly the visa restrictions, uh, the vaccine restrictions for ch- Chinese travelers. On the luxury side, that's got to be a big, big plus. It is. And how did you know that we just came out with a report on Monday all about the China reopening and who <laughs> particularly it benefits? And when you, So your, your, your timing, frankly, couldn't be more perfect because you're exactly right. It does benefit luxury. And if you think of what we've been seeing now, we've been seeing certainly some improvement levels, whether it was companies like Tapestry or LVMH, who's talking about the rebound and the reopening of China. That's who we're hearing about it. Who benefits? It's LVMH, given the diversification of their portfolio. It's Hermes. It's Richemont, given the penetration and luxury goods that they have right now. So I'm excited about how China reopens to the world. But there's two other elements just to note about this China reopening. Let's talk about what the travels look like. In 2019, China had over 150 million outbound travelers who spent $255 billion in 2019. The savings of Chinese consumers rose $2.6 trillion in 2022. So exactly like you said, if they begin to travel, even in the second half of the year, they will be a big benefit to retail sales. Dana, when we're talking about the China story, I feel like we also have to talk about other regions of the world. To what extent is the Middle East becoming a more and more important region for some of those luxury names? So it's, when you think about the Middle East overall, it is becoming more important. But when you think about where sales are coming from, whether it's companies like LVMH, just that smallest part of the world, the Middle East and some other areas, it's still only 7% of sales. So it's certainly not as significant. When you look at the carings of the world who own Gucci, it's still a relatively small piece of the pie at 7% also. There's a ways to go. Europe, Asia, North America, 
are the areas where there's the most beneficial impact. So we, we touched on luxury. How about on the other end of the retail spectrum? I'm thinking like the you know the dollar stores and Dollar General and maybe you know, maybe even you know Walmart and Target. If I'm an investor, do I feel like if times get tough, if there's a recession, if inflation persists, are we seeing people trading down to those types of uh, stores? It's interesting. Many of the companies overall have not said that they've fully seen the trade down yet. But yet, when you talk to the off-pricers, like the TJXs of the world, whose recent comps were up 7%, and we talked about an uptick in apparel and the pickup in traffic, well, they're getting, they're getting that share. I think, like Walmart, Target is definitely planning cautiously for 2023. You look at their comp guidance of down low single digits to up, single, up low single digits, yet the margin recovery, given Target expects operating income to, to grow double digits in 2023, that's encouraging. So, yes, I do think you see the benefits of the trade down that way, and you see it in merchandise with the newness. You look at beauty, Ulta, you have Ulta and Target, that should be a benefit. You look at loyalty, you look at that Target Circle loyalty member base of 100 million plus today, there's opportunities for improvement, continued improvement in conversion at discounters. Dana, 30 seconds here. Talk to us a little bit about card spend. Are people still willing to spend on their credit cards or are we kind of looking at people buying from their savings? A little bit buying from their savings at the lower to middle income level. Credit card data has become a little bit more cautious lately, and we're seeing a little bit of an uptick in some of those bad debts. All right, Dana, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting uh, your perspective on all things retail. Dana Telsey, Chief Research Officer and CEO of uh, Telsey Advisory Group. Before that, she was a Senior Managing Director at Bear Stearns. And she was a former analyst at a firm called C.J. Lawrence. And if you're of a certain generation, you know C.J. Lawrence. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I want to get right over to those regional banks and get back to see what has really been a big, big issue for this market over the last week or so with uh, some of these uh, failures of some of these small regional banks. Herman Chan, Senior Analyst, U.S. Regional Banks with Bloomberg Intelligence, joins the program. Also, we have Arnold Kakuda. He is Credit Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, focusing on the, the banks. Arnold, I want to start with you because we were just talking to Katie Greifeld, and she was talking with the source, Anastasia Amoroso, over at iCapital. And Anastasia was saying, hey, you got to take a look at some of these bank bonds. There's some real quality out there, and they're trading at very effective or very attractive uh, yields out there. What are you seeing on the credit side of some of the regional banks out there, Arnold? Yeah, I mean, definitely, yeah, if, if, if this storm passes, and then, you know, we got another curveball today with uh, Credit Suisse, you know, having some issues and kind of bringing some, you know, car counterparty risk issues, you know, to, to the bigger banks here. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it's still not over, though, right? Um, you had, um, what is it, I think Moody's, uh, no, S&P coming in with a downgrade to um, FRC, you know, uh, down from A, A, A minus to, to junk rating, right? So, 
Um, you know, there's still definitely concerns on, on dep- deposit flow out risk, um, the de- deposit out, um, outflow risk. And, uh, yeah, you know, we might get an update, you know, when, when these guys report quarterly earnings and saying, you know, do they have to tap this new, you know, uh, bank funding facility and whatnot. So I think, you know, there's still some risk out there, but, you know, if you believe that things may stabilize and some of the bigger players, uh, may benefit, i.e., you know, we got the news that B of A, got 15 billion of deposits, you know, probably, you know, if that's the case, then uh, JP Morgan probably got a lot more, right? But um, th- there's still things out there that, that might be kind of a little bit dicey. Herman, hop on into this conversation, because in addition to all of this kind of craziness happening in the bond market, and of course, some of these bank bond spreads, First Republic, one of the regional banks we were following, getting downgraded today. Right. Why? There's a lot of uncertainty with the deposit base. Uh, Management had an opportunity to, to discuss that um, when they've been on uh, media's uh, reports and have been a bit uh, avoiding the matter. So until we get some more clarity on, on where deposits stand, there's going to be some uncertainty with the name. Um, I, I do think that the liquidity facility that Arnold just articulated does shield them from some issues in terms of managing the balance sheet. But longer term is what happens with deposits and when can they stabilize and, and move on. So that that's un- the underlying big question that the, the uh, industry is trying to figure out right now. So, Herman, I'm looking at the uh, S&P 500 regional uh, index here, stock index, uh, down 32% year to date, down 48% on a trailing 12-month basis. That's telling me that the market thinks this is more than just a blip. There's something fundamental out there. I know yesterday you did not think it was systemic per se. Right. Has anything changed in 24 hours? There's just a lot of uncertainty in the marketplace. Um, Things tend to up here without notice. Uh, you've, Arnold mentioned the Credit Suisse situation. That doesn't help confidence. Right. Um, and the, the, there's a lot of uncertainty with where deposits are going, what happens with bank balance sheets, um, and where interest rates are going, and the economic repercussions of the bank uh, fallouts, because if banks aren't going to lend because deposits are flowing out of the system, that has very strong implications for the future growth of the economy because banks are, are scared at this point. So th- there, there will be some uh, you know, domino effect of, of what's going on. So that's, that's something that, that is adding to the uncertainty. Well, Herman, in addition to just some of the uncertainty that you're seeing, I thought it was interesting that Ken Griffin of Citadel yep. bought a stake, uh, Western Alliance Bancorp, WAL, the stock is down, though, <laughs> even though it was higher, I want to say, by like 8 or 9% in the pre-market. Why that specific bank? Why are they not uh, facing the same scrutiny or same downgrades as First Republic? Yeah, uh, I think Western Alliance is a bank that, that has historically been pretty well managed, low credit risk. Uh, it operates in uh, the California, Arizona, Nevada market. So it's sort of tangential to what SVB does. They, they did buy a bank that does uh, very much the same focus as SVB with, with startups and venture capital. So that's why they were initially lumped in. Uh, but the management team has been very strong um, and they've, they've come out with, with pretty good um, updates in terms of where they stand uh, from a liquidity standpoint. So I'd point to that. Hey, Arnold, as a credit analyst, um, what are you really looking at when 
you analyze uh, a, a bank security there? I mean, is it, give us a sense of what you're looking at and, and, and how does it kind of look today? Yeah, so, you know, traditionally we look at, you know, the loan book, how safe are the loans, and, um, you know, um, in, in terms of, from that standpoint, right, the traditional bank credit analysis, um, credit quality is still pretty resilient, you know, given what has been so far a resilient consumer. And so, you know, people are paying their bills on time. Um, and so, but, you know, slowly and steadily, we've seen kind of a normalization, uh, the normalization of credit to, you know, where net net charge-offs are rising, but, but normalizing, not, you know, um, going, you know, anywhere haywire. But again, we're, we're still at the start of a, of a potential recession, right? And so I think things will get worse, but it's just a matter of, you know, how much worse. And it just, a lot of this stuff that has happened now, this is, it's almost like basic liquidity analysis, right? Where, um, all right, you take in deposits and, and, and you make loans, but for a lot of these banks that got into trouble, it's, okay, they, they, they became bond managers, right? They, they had big bond portfolios that, you know, they, 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 and, then, and then the regulation was more relaxed for them so that um, they didn't have to, you know, real, uh, the unrealized losses on these available for sale securities, it did not hit their capital level. So, um, you know, it, it delayed the pain, right? Like when the deposits fled and they had to sell these AFS securities, that's when it really hurt. You know, that's when the, the, their capital levels will be hit. And so I think that's where the regulation might start changing, right, uh, where, where, where some of these mid to smaller size banks uh, might need to start accounting for, you know, how their bond portfolios are doing instead of, you know, really realizing at the last moment when deposits are fleeing out the door. Arnold, when we talk about spreads specifically, I think we're looking a lot at, of course, uh Credit Suisse and their bonds, I think it was like a 1,000 basis point move or something, something in like distressed territory. Correct me if I'm wrong there. But I want to ask, how long will it take for that to spread to some of the other banks? We're already seeing it a little bit in the equity price action, but in terms of the bond market, are they a little bit more insulated? Yeah, I mean, we're starting to see, you know, the spreads, I think, um, bottom, you know, from, from a wide in, in October and November, you know, kind of bottomed. Uh, tightened a lot until you know early February, and we've been kind of on this widening path, and you know uh, more wider today. But yeah, it, it's because of kind of the interconnectedness of, of these big banks, right? So that's you know anytime one of these bigger institutions is, is having an issue, yeah, you know it, Credit Suisse is a, is a major trading counterparty to you know the, the JP Morgans and the B of A's and stuff. So um, I, I think there's definitely worry, and you know the banking model, right? It's it's it, it's you know it's, it's a big surprise because usually you can kind of see these things when companies are having issues, but with SVB, which um, had about four billion of bonds and, and uh, three three four billion of preferreds, this all happened in like within forty eight hours, right? And and this is an investment grade name, so that's the fear. It's like wow, this stuff can happen really quickly. Um, you know, the, 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 this confidence game where if, if if you know people start seeing the stocks move. Oh my God! Are they going to start moving their money, whether it be you right. know wealth management assets or deposits? And and that that you know when 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 the funding goes away, you know do you have enough liquid assets to to you know handle that outflow? And you know if it's, the deposit run is just so great, you know any institution yep. is, is almost at risk. All right, Arnold. Uh, really appreciate getting uh, your perspective. Arnold Kakuta, Senior Financials Credit Analyst with Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on the phone. And Herman Chan, Senior Analyst for the regional banks, covering it from the equity side. Both of them from uh, Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us here in our studio, getting the latest on this regional bank challenge slash crisis. 
get a sense of what all this turmoil in the world means for emerging markets and other parts of the world, um, let's check in with Nick Stottmiller. He is head of global product for Medley Advisors. He joins us live in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Nick, we've got Credit Suisse news today. We've had a couple of bank failures, uh, granted smaller banks uh, in the U.S., a lot of uncertainty. We just had some bank analysts in here talking about all the uncertainty in the financial sector. How does it spill over to your world, to emerging markets and things like that? Well, uh, Credit Suisse is obviously uh, quite a large bank and quite active yep. globally, but the banks that failed in the U.S., there's not really any direct connection. But I think the indirect connection, which is as you have increased uncertainty in the financial sector in the U.S., banks become less uh, less willing to lend and so that tightens global credit conditions and it makes it a lot harder for these emerging markets to raise funding so uh, the tighter uh, tighter credit conditions will spill over into em and crimp growth and then also you have the broader risk off uh, move and you were talking about the strength in the dollar and you have a lot of the higher b to em currencies just getting whacked today on the move well, I love that you mentioned kind of the dollar going into this because your background is actually in the Middle East a, a little bit. And it's fascinating to me because a lot of these European banks that are getting hit have extra exposure to the Middle East uh, that I would argue a lot of, say, the Silicon Valley banks or the regional banks that created the chaos earlier in the week don't. So walk us through kind of the connection there. Well, uh, particularly in the Gulf, which is uh, where I spent quite a bit of time, there's plenty of liquidity in terms of the sovereign wealth funds. In fact, you know, the thing that really got Credit Suisse moving today was uh, yeah. the uh, the Saudi banking executive saying that they're not willing to put more money into it. So I don't think that this is blowing back on the Gulf. But if you remember back to the 2008 crisis, it was uh, Qatar and some of the other uh, Gulf sovereign wealth funds that provided backstops to some of the global banks. So if anything, I would look for the Gulf uh, to be a stabilizing force rather than experiencing instability as a result of this. It's amazing. I mean, and they're, from your experience, they're still willing to invest in Western financial institutions. It's just this is a Credit Suisse maybe specific issue. Yeah, and also the sovereign wealth funds don't want to be the first ones to pile in. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's uh, you know as they say, it's sort of like catching a falling knife right. when you're trying to invest in these markets. So I, I would expect them to wait for the dust to settle a bit and then try to pick the strongest institutions that they think have uh, you know the best prospects. Where where are you seeing opportunities these days? Because I'll tell you, a lot of people are just very nervous um, across the board. We see that in the moves in the treasury market every day, just whipsawing all around. Where are you guys spending some time these days? Well, I think, uh, you know, there are a lot of decent fundamentals out there, particularly in Asia. And it's interesting that, uh, you know, the Korean won has actually benefited from a lot of this uh, turmoil, uh, even though, you know, their economy, a lot of these export dependent economies are probably going to have a bit of a slump in the second half of the year, assuming that there is a hard landing in the U.S. Uh, but, you know, there seems to be some more fundamental strength there and much less financial instability. I think the key here is really just to wait until the dust settles on this. And if you do start to get some serious easing from the global central banks, there probably would be a, a rally down the road, but probably stay on the sidelines for now, I'd say. What does it then mean for, say, a country like uh, in Latin America, for example, has a lot of commodity exposure? And the reason I ask this is because if you're looking at the moves in oil for right now, we're looking at a 67 handle on NYMEX crude. And it feels like ordinarily you wouldn't necessarily see oil react to something like the Credit Suisse move. But it almost feels like it's a ripple effect of Fed pricing. How does a EM investor focus on Latin America or commodity exposed economies navigate that? 
Yeah, it, it's really tough. And I think you're 100% right that uh, a lot of the moves we're seeing in commodities right now are more about financial ripples, more so than necessarily the macro ripples. Because, yeah. of course, if the U.S. goes into a deep recession as a result of all of this, of course, that's going to pair demand for all of these commodities. But in the first instance, you know, a lot of these investment banks and trading desks are just really de-risking, which means they need to dump a lot yeah, of. We uh, hear that all lot. On. You know, I was just we hear that a story, lot because right? yeah. you know, having used to be on a trading desk. You know, I used to at Solomon Brothers. I'd walk onto the government, you know, to the fixed income bond trading floor, and there'd be row after row after row of people trading government bonds. That's liquidity to me. That's not there is what I'm hearing, you know, really since the great financial crisis, that's really been winnowed down. And that can be a problem in certain times. And I'm hearing from a lot of people like you that that liquidity is an issue or lack of liquidity is an issue. Absolutely. And, and when the markets are more volatile, market makers just aren't as aggressive in pro yep. providing tight pricing uh, or that the size that people want. So that exacerbates the move. So volatility almost begets volatility in that case. What do you expect the Fed to do next Thursday here. I'm looking at our world interest rate probability function, WIRP, W-I-R-P, and it's showing that we've, we're at or near peak rates, and the rates are going to start going down. I mean, is that what you think? Our, our view is for uh, another 25 basis point hike okay. uh, coming up uh, in March, and then another uh, 25 in May, and then they're done. Okay. Uh, but that, of course, is caveated <laughs> on this not getting worse. If the banking uh, system issues get worse, then the Fed's probably going to have to do something. And to the point about Fed cuts being priced in the second half of the year, if that's what in fact happens, that things get so bad that the Fed has to cut from June onwards, I think risk, uh, risk assets are going to be in a very different place. It's very hard for me to reconcile credit and equity markets, which have sold off but are still relatively resilient to these massive moves we've seen in the front end and just a complete repricing of the Fed. And one of them has to be wrong. And I don't think they can both be right. Are you going to start to see more than as we kind of see all this chaos shake out, see more divergences in the sovereign bond world to Paul's point? I mean, it feels like German boons and treasuries on the same page at the moment, arguably gilts as well. But then you have something like Argentine debt or something. I think I read a story yesterday, 100% inflation there. Mm. A lot of the EM bond world, are they going to be on the same page? No. And uh, I think you saw this particularly in local currency debt in sort of the first day or two of this big sell-off uh, in risk assets that uh, a lot of these local currency bonds uh, were actually rallying because they said, oh, okay, well, if the Fed is going to be less aggressive, that's lower global rates, which is good for all these bonds. But then the secondary effect is, you know, how much risk appetite are you going to have from global investors to be in this stuff? And, you know, if the currencies are selling off, and the economies uh, are, are weakening, it's not a good environment for uh, emerging market bonds. So I think you will see this divergence that the traditional safe haven, the biggest uh, global developed markets will actually rally. But I think EM is going to be in for some weakness over the next several months. We can't let an emerging markets uh, manager walk out of our studio without talking about China. We were talking to Dana Telsley uh, earlier. She's the um, top retail analyst on Wall Street, and she just came out with a big report Monday, really extolling the opportunities for retail, but particularly for luxury, from the reopening of China, you know, in terms of the, the spending opportunities and so on and so forth. From an investment standpoint, where are we today with investing in, in China? Is it, it people feel like it's a toxic a little bit, or can you still invest? 
Well, we, we've definitely seen over the last uh, six months or so a, a lot of increased worry about uh, U.S.-China trade relations and how that might spill into uh, into uh, the um, the wisdom of uh, investing in Chinese assets. But from a fundamental standpoint, our China analyst is is quite bullish on China. He thinks that growth will come in at close to six percent, well above uh, China's uh, official around five really? percent okay. forecast and very much led by pent-up demand from consumers, particularly on the services side. Uh, so we're, we're actually quite bullish on China at this point, but with the caveat that the geopolitical risk is quite a bit higher than it has been in previous years. Yeah, because you think about their pent-up demand, and they've been locked down so much longer and harder than everybody else in the yeah. world for travel, for spending. It's just got to be huge. And I walk to Penn Station occasionally, and I walk through Times Square, and the European tourists are back in, in droves. They're back. Uh, but not so much Asia. That's kind of my just, you know, primary research walking through t Times Square. But man, if that changes, that, uh, that's just going to be so important to see how that plays out across the economy. Nick Stottmiller, uh, thank you so much for joining us. Nick is the uh, head of global product for Medley Advisors. We appreciate uh, him coming into our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. It's always better to get these folks in person. So we give them a yeah. gold star, don't we? We give them a gold, gold star, star, gold star purple for coming metal, in, whatever. all that kind of good stuff. <laughs> The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. All right, we've been talking about this SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, uh, trying to cover it from every angle. One of the angles is there's a lot of companies that did business with SVB and really depended upon it. Uh, and what does it mean from them? And, you know, you know, it just it's really going to be an issue that will have a rippling effect through the valley for quite some time. And we want to get it unique angle here from the perspective of mergers and acquisition. Thomas Smale joins us. He's the CEO of FE International. Um, Thomas, thanks so much for joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Give us just 15 seconds, elevator pitch. What do you guys do at FE International? Yeah, we're a M and a firm. We work with sellers of businesses in the tech space and we're up to 250 million and we help them ultimately exit their business to a range of acquirers, public companies, private equity firms, individuals, and strategic All right, buyers. so you're tied into the valley big time. Your clients are, I mean, the, the lifeblood. Um, here we are several days after the Silicon Valley kind of blow up here. What does it mean day to day for your clients that are out there in the valley in terms of, I don't know, making payroll, you know, making investments in their business, paying, you know, maybe thinking about strategic acquisitions that maybe they're talking to you about. Uh, what's going on out there? Yeah, so interestingly, no real change. We had our team in the office all weekend, calling buyers, calling sellers, getting a feel for their current appetite. No one we spoke to had changed their strategy. Buyers are still buying, sellers are still selling. Um, of the buyers we spoke to, less than 1% of them had exposure to SVB as, as clients. So. From what we've seen, it's going to be business as usual, particularly since the news on Monday. It seems like most things are beginning to pick up again. So, I mean, is, is that in, simply in the context of the government is going to backstop SVB? Because it's, I guess my understanding was the big tech players, once you get to a certain size, you outgrow SVB and you take your banking to JP Morgan Chase or whatever. So it's really for smaller and mid-sized 
tech companies that really rely upon SVB. So even those companies are saying they're not too concerned? Yeah, I mean, I think obviously there was a lot of noise about SVB, but the reality is it wasn't a large percentage of even tech companies banking with them. So there was definitely an effect. But the vast majority of people, once you get to a certain stage, you have multiple bank accounts. If you have a big enough business, you can easily move that relationship, which I know many people did. Like most companies like us, we have three banking relationships. So that doesn't really change. Um, so yes, you're right, SVB, definitely tech focused, definitely a lot of noise, but it doesn't really change things for the majority How of people. How about in the venture community out there? What, what's the feeling there? Like if I have a really cool idea and I find myself on Sand Hill, Sand Hill Road, will I get my funding today? Yeah, I mean, I think there's no real change from that perspective. I, I'm not aware of anyone pulling term sheets at the moment or changing their deals. Like ultimately, if you bank with SVB at the moment, you have access to your cash a lot of the venture capital firms would be working with them, but I'm not aware of any changes from that perspective. The thing with the Valley as well, or just tech in general, word spreads fast. You, you don't want to get a reputation as a private equity firm or a VC that's pulling term sheets from founders who are trying to make payroll. That's yep. not a good look and people will talk. How about rising interest rates? What does that mean for, I mean, obviously for the publicly traded stocks, it was bad for them in 2022. Tech stocks underperformed dramatically. Uh, a lot of folks think tech may not even be a leader once we do get to the other side of this, uh, as it's led the market for the last decade. You know, in terms of pu pu public trading, uh, public stocks. What does it mean rising interest rates for for your world out there for kind of mid-sized tech M&A? Yeah, I think firstly, it's a great time to be a business owner in the tech space. If you have a business below 250 million in valuation. The majority of the business owners we work with at FE International have profitable businesses. They focus on generating positive cash flows. They don't necessarily rely on external investors. So interest rates, definitely something you keep an eye on as a small business owner. But if you're profitable, ultimately it doesn't really affect you. If anything, you're benefited from your bigger, bigger competitors being hindered. Maybe they have to make layoffs. If you're small and profitable, you're more nimble. You, you don't have a problem like that. So. I think the world we operate in, it's a good thing for most people. If you look at my 10, 50 year view of tech, very bullish. Yep. How about the, we have seen a lot of um, announcements from big tech companies, you know, publicly traded Microsofts of the world, Metas of the world, laying off people. Meta just came out uh, yesterday. Uh, just above 10% of their workforce are gonna be like, this is getting serious out there. What's the mood? And usually, like even six months ago when we saw some of those tech layoffs, the assumption was that they were gonna be hired tomorrow by somebody else. What's the mood out in, in the Valley about, this is getting serious in terms of layoffs? Yeah, so I think, again, there's a big difference between the big public companies and the small, nimble, profitable companies. If you're small and profitable, of all the clients we've worked with, almost none of them are making layoffs at the moment because they don't need to. I think the larger firms, which are more affected by swings in their own stock price or just the public markets, macro and like, they're definitely companies that have to be seen to be making layoffs to get closer to cash flow profitability. If you're a smaller business, less of a problem, you don't need to make layoffs. And that ultimately helps a lot of these small businesses compete and ultimately means that from an M&A perspective, there's consistent demand for those businesses because they're still making money. So what's a typical client or typical deal for FE International? Is it, is it like my company had a really cool idea. I built it. I had a couple rounds of VC funding. I've, I've grown it. And now I'm looking for an exit and 
is it to a, I mean, is it to a, do I want to sell out to a private equity fund? Do I want to sell out to a strategic? What's a typical deal look for you? Yeah, so firstly, we've closed over 1,200 transactions, but maybe I'll oh. give you an, an example we worked with recently, a company called Thrivecart. It was in the education technology space. Um, the founder started the business with nothing. He did not come from a rich background. He did not have a family with money. He had no investors. Started that business from zero about five years ago. Has been in contact with us for many years. We spoke to him two years ago. His business was a low seven-figure valuation. Um, a couple of months ago, we helped him successfully exit for $35 million. So there's a and what type of buyer was it? Was it a strategic buyer? Yeah, the buyer was a, a private equity firm called LTV Fund. Um, they invest in tech companies generally below 250 million in, in valuation. If you, if you, I mean, if you look at private equity as a whole, currently there's three trillion dollars in dry powder. Yep. So you can look at the public markets and say maybe M and A isn't going to happen. But the reality is, private equity firms need to be deploying their capital. Deals like Thrivecart, profitable, growing, are always going to be popular. There's a lot of private equity firms out there. They want to deploy their capital, and that strategy isn't really going to change. Interesting. All right. So things are maybe not quite as bad out in the valley uh, as we're, uh, some are fearing of given uh, on the backs of the SVB uh, failure. Thomas Smale, thanks so much for joining us here. Thomas Smale, he's the CEO of FE International, providing uh, M&A advice uh, in the SaaS, e-commerce, and content businesses. You know, we're talking about Silicon Valley Bank uh, for, you know, better part of a week here. And we're just starting to really understand um, the ripple effects across the tech and VC space. Um, you know, it's going to be profound for a lot of these companies, a lot of these VC firms. Uh, we want to check in with Josh Chapman. He's a managing partner at Convoy Ventures. Convoy Ventures is an early stage venture fund dedicated to video gaming right up John Tucker's alley, okay. uh, the partners with founders um, at the earliest stages. Josh, give us your perspective on, you know, Silicon Valley Bank. What does it mean for, for the Valley, for tech, for the VC community? Do we know yet, or is it still too early? Absolutely, and thanks for having me back on the show. It's good to be here. Uh, Paul and John, these are great questions about the future for the venture capital market. Um, first and foremost is the the fear around where the operating cash for portfolio companies seems to be subsiding, at least right now, you know, barring future contagion and new information for us all. So that's the first priority is for every VC to work on securing the cash for their portfolio companies, um, helping them navigate through this. And that's first and foremost. The second ripple effect that's happening right now is that with Silicon Valley Bank down, over 50% of venture capital firms have their back office banking operations effectively interrupted um, or at least frozen. And so that is a, a really interesting operational thing in the venture market right now, which is going to probably create an artificial operational slowdown for the next at least week, two weeks, four weeks. I mean, however long it would take to move those operations for, for a banking solution uh, to a different bank, whether it's a tier one or a group like First Republic. You know, this is this is a very live situation. I think that'll be the, the second ripple effect. I think the third ripple effect here is that venture capital as a market has already been going through a little bit of a cool down, a little bit more of a correction. The words, you know, profitability and EBITDA becoming a little bit more common. And that's healthy for the market as business models get correctly challenged by investors. And I think 
that's just accelerated by this current environment. I need a short primer on how the whole process works. Tell a dummy how it works. The venture capital firm finds a company it has an interest in and raises the capital, and then that capital, you stick it in the bank and withdraw the money as you need it? Or explain to me. Absolutely. So what we do is venture capital, uh, venture capitalists is we raise capital from limited partners or LPs. Those LPs then sign documents, let's say for a $100 million fund. Um, our third fund is, you know, 150. And so a $100 million fund, um, they then sign a document saying that they are committing that capital, but they don't wire that capital immediately. As you find companies that we're excited to invest in, we then call down that capital through a capital call, very, very witty uh, title there, but a capital call where we call down, let's say, $5 million of that. That money is then used to, say, spend a little bit on salaries, operations, rent, travel, and then the rest is going to be used primarily to make those investments and buy equity in what is hopefully the next Uber or Twitter or LinkedIn, right? And so we call this capital down over time. What that means from a banking operations standpoint is that everyone at SVB, as well as us over at like First Republic, is we were calling capital into First Republic, um, and the VCs were calling it into Silicon Valley Bank. With Silicon Valley, with Silicon Valley Bank down, where are you calling that capital to? You have to reposition your operations over to a new bank and set up with KYC and documents and everything to set up a new bank account. The difference is operating companies usually have one bank account. They run all cash, okay. all payroll, all expenses. But for us, we have two bank accounts per fund. And so we have three funds. And so we have over 10 bank accounts with First Republic. And we're a medium-sized firm, right? When you look at Sequoia, NEA, Andreessen, they probably have hundreds of individual bank accounts that they're running. And so that's the complexity of the operational hiccup that's going on right now. Now, is that complexity that limits you from spreading it out over any number of different banks? We could spread it out. You could hedge that risk over different banks. VCs usually centralize it. I haven't met one that, that has different banks, but they usually centralize most of their banking operations at one location. I think that is sort of uh, maybe a, a question mark here as we walk into what's next. Yeah. Hey, Josh, you know, one of the reasons Silicon Valley Bank came into existence decades ago in the first place is because banks don't want to bank some of these small startup companies, you know, no profitability. And where do those companies go now? I think they'll probably stay mostly within the tech banking world. But that said, over the last 20 years, tech has contributed such a meaningful part of GDP growth in not only the world, but of course, our country here in the United States. And tech has driven immense investment banking and IPO and M&A revenues for the largest groups like Goldman, JP Morgan, Morgan Stanley. It has been a huge revenue driver. Um, and so because of that, some of these larger banks have started to come downstream to service startups, usually in the Series B, C, or D range, right? Ones that have, you know, 20 to 100 million in cash balances, they've raised large rounds. Um, but increasingly so, and you're seeing this from groups like Bank of America, JP Morgan, and even Goldman now, where they're starting to move even earlier. This crisis has accelerated that trend and compressed that, um, that trend into what feels like a week, um, not entirely. Obviously, there's a lot of work to do, but I think you're going to see a lot of the tier one banks continue to open up 
uh, venture capital, treasury, and banking solutions for this market. What's your your typical uh, ratio of hits to misses in terms of the companies in which a venture capital firm invests, and how has this banking crisis changed that ratio, if at all? Um, The ratio is usually a high miss to hit ratio. That's kind of sort of the law of large winners. I think it's, you know, less than 10 to 20 percent of the portfolio is going to contribute 80% plus of your return of capital to investors. And so unlike private equity that, you know, looks for three, five to 10 X return on their investment, venture capital is looking, especially at early stage at, you know, 30 to hundred X on your investment to account for the high risk that you're taking across the board. So, you know, anywhere from 50 to 80% of a portfolio might not work out depending on the success of the VC firm. Yep. Obviously my job, you know, John Paul is to uh, get that ratio as, as high as I can on right. the success side, but it's a, it's a high risk game for sure. All right, Josh, it's a high risk game. It's a young man's game, John. Uh, Josh Chapman, managing partner at Convoy Ventures joining us. Really appreciate getting his perspective on the VC market and any impacts that may come from uh, the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Matt Miller. I'm on Twitter at MattMiller1973. And I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide at Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com.